Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast. My guest today is an actor and author named Bradley Upton. Though his career has taken him from stage to screen to keyboard, Brad always seems to encounter a specific type of creature in his work, vampires. We had a fun conversation about bloodsuckers, myth and reality, Hollywood, and ensuring that your life's work is fun. I found Brad to be honest, thoughtful, and engaging, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as well. All right. Hi, Brad. Hi. Thanks for uh, being willing to let me come over to your house and sit down at your table with you. <laughs> sure, no problem. <laughs> um, just as a, re a real quick recap how we got connected, I did an interview a couple weeks back with Bruce Marion, mm -hmm. and uh, I asked him, hey, who else should I talk to? And he said, you got to talk to Brad. <laughs> That's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I met Bruce last year uh, at the Festival for Fine Arts and uh, just love the Joyous Bear stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so I picked up a couple prints and then one of his paintings. All right. Very cool. Well, thanks again for having me. Sure. And um, when I called you, there was a little bit of hesitancy. You said, I don't know if I'm the most interesting person. I, well, do people go around thinking I'm really interesting? <laughs> you know, probably not. Not Probably really. not. I, I don't think so, at least. Yeah. Well, I, this is only the second time that I've talked to you, mm -hmm. and I can tell that there's um, there's a well there. I guess. <laughs> okay, so you've had a couple of different um, experiences, let's call them creative careers. Right. And um, maybe maybe I'll let you list just list them off. Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm an actor. Uh, I was in L.A. for around 25 years uh and before that and during and after uh writer occasionally uh wrote my first book after college and kind of you know stuck it in a desk drawer and didn't really do anything with it and then about uh seven years ago 2015 i was talking with a friend and i said i wrote a book and she's as a playwright, she wanted to read it, so I gave her a copy, and she liked it and thought I should do something with it. So I had to completely retype the the manuscript into a computer because uh, it was so long ago that uh, digitally there were no viable copies. <laughs> yeah, but that also gave me the chance to look at everything 
change what I wanted to. And uh, nothing was so precious that I couldn't just take a knife to it. Yeah. You know. So so you wrote that right after college, you said? Yeah. Um, I didn't plan on writing a book, but a, a friend of mine, my senior year in college, uh, came up to me. He knew I wrote, and he asked me to write a one act for him for a, a directing class. And I thought that was weird, but all right. Um, I didn't know what to do with it. And then I was listening to a Sting album called Dream of the Blue Turtles. And there's a song called Moon Over Bourbon Street. And there's a line in it that is, uh, the brim of my hat hides the eyes of a beast, not the face of a killer, but the hands of a priest. I think that's the line. And I went, what if a priest became a vampire? So that became the uh, premise for the, uh, I wrote it as a short story. And then I gave it to Lee. He read it and went, that's really cool. But I dropped the class. You should do something with this. So after college, I, you know, in between work and just goofing around, I wrote a book. Tried to get it published the the traditional ways. Um you know, find an agent, uh, get it submitted that way type of thing. Uh, it's a lot more difficult than what is available now. Right. Because the, yeah. the gatekeepers are gone, basically. And uh, anybody with a manuscript can get it published on Amazon or Ingram Spark or a few other uh, sources. But, uh, you know, after I retyped the whole novel in, and had it edited by a couple people, uh, just put it out through Amazon. I, I had a friend who was a graphic artist and a great photographer and stuff, and uh, went in with uh, I had a couple ideas for the cover. And she was like, this is about 40 layers in Photoshop, and I don't know Photoshop. And she said, let's make this simple. and." We ended up using my face from a, a vampire web series I did in 2000 because uh, I had production shots of me. Uh, so I was the cover. <laughs> <laughs> and is, so is the, um, the vampire become, or the priest becomes a vampire. Does that make him the bad guy? Uh, the priest. Uh... I'm just, I guess I'm just wondering if you went into this with the idea that you were going to be the bad guy on the cover no um i no i i did not i needed a vampire face <laughs> and so that was an easy image yeah to have uh as far as the priest being a vampire uh that's only like the of the first chapter because he the vampire priest comes in to his uh old apprentice it sounds like jedi and sith stuff and he's wanting to be released from the life of being a vampire, which means basically killing him. Um, and then he, the the uh, younger priest kills him, but the older one who's a vampire says, there are vampires out there. You should go kill vampires. So that sets him off on a road to hunt vampires. Okay. It, you know, uh, there are, you know, tons of vampire novels and everybody has a different take. And 
what is it? So you did a vampire book right out of right out of college. You wrote this thing kind of on a whim, mm-hmm. but then later you said you were in a vampire web series. Yeah. So um, what is it about vampires that keep following you throughout <laughs> this whole experience? Um, I don't know. Uh, I I remember seeing the Lost Boys when I was a kid. And just thought that was a really cool movie. You know, sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. It's fun to be a vampire. That was the tag. Um, So I just kind of thought they were cool. I had made fake teeth using uh, some stuff called friendly plastic. And, uh, you know, when the guy who had the web series was looking to do it, he initially asked me about, building sets and production work and lighting and stuff because that was something I was, had done professionally and I worked a lot of rock and roll concerts and built props and so I, I've got a very odd skill set. Uh, but when he was asking me about that, I, I asked if I could audition. He was, oh, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I went in, did the audition, and he said, can you put in the teeth? Click, click. And he's like snarling. Like, um, and he's like, that's really cool. You know? And it was a, it was a series in 2001, basically called dark commandos. And this is before anybody did web series. Mm-hmm. Cause it was, a, you know, the, the wild west and the internet and stuff. This was, so. that was probably even before Netflix was doing DVD, like through the mail. I, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but yeah, it, that might be predate that. I'm pretty sure it predates YouTube. I'm not exactly sure when YouTube came out. Yeah, I want to say YouTube was 2005. Five? Yeah. yeah, somewhere around there. Like 2005. So um, Tom, who had written it with a, a his writing partner, was also the director, producer. He did all the VFX on it because the plan was to shoot in front of a green screen with just the props that you need and the actors, and then drop in backgrounds behind it. So you could have the Batcave or whatever for the lair. Um, But because it was just him, you know, we needed a whole production team and video uh, VFX people and stuff. So we got about maybe eight episodes together. Um you know, it, it cuts together as about a 45 minute DVD. Uh, it's pretty cool. The, the story arc was, he was going for, you know, long story arc, like, uh, what was it called? Babylon five, you know, sort of a Russian novel kind of pace. Gotcha. And I just thought we should be out there blowing stuff up and killing people, you know, (laughs) like, uh, you know, a mission every episode where you go in, to a bad situation because it was a vampires working as a wet team for the government. So they're vampire commandos. It was called dark commandos. Uh, it was, it was a great concept. I had a fun character that was just a irredeemable killer. So it was kind of like Wolverine without uh, a conscience. It was great. Yeah. You, I read a little bit about it online. Oh, okay. And so it, I think it said something like you, you were the son of the other guy. No, um, or I, I want to say the name was like Nan or something. Non. Non. I was uh Garlic Non. <laughs> no, not for vampires. <laughs> um 
depends on how your vampires work. <laughs> That's uh, true. Because you know, in the Lost Boys, they could have vamp, uh, they could have garlic. Uh, but no. Uh, but he was like the spiritual one, and he was trying to get you to be spiritual. He was kind of the, he was the leader of the the four vampires. Uh, I was the rogue. Um, you had a a young woman who had just been turned, so she was like the neophyte. And then you had uh, Ed, who was younger than me. I I think the uh, origin story for me was starting around 1910 or something like that. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was a fun series, and I wish it could have gone somewhere. Um, but because nobody knew what to do with web series, uh, it's not on IMDb. Even though Disney can now go, hey, we're doing a web series, and IMDb will have a page up the next day, right? With all the people involved, um, there were numerous attempts to get it on uh, IMDb, but sadly, never nope. made it. Never oh, made it. Bummer. It's in my trivia page for IMDb for my uh, uh, listing. Okay. Because um, I did other acting stuff like Days of Our Lives. I was on Days of Our Lives seven times as six different characters. So every six months, the under five casting, which is under five lines, uh, he would call me up and go, can you be a French waiter? Sure. Can you be an undercover <laughs> cop? Sure. Security guard? Uh-huh. Photographer? Right on. Fr- you know, French cop. Um, so it was it was just funny. Like every six months, I'd go in and uh get to act and get to play it was fun yeah having done having done uh your book you've done you've written three vampire mm-hmm. books now yeah. and then having done the vampire series not not to say that your whole life has been vampires but no. uh you perhaps have spent more time thinking about vampires than the average person um i guess uh after I wrote the first one, I read a bunch of different authors' work on vampires, and everybody comes up with their own mythology and ways people become vampires and what uh, you know vampires do and things. Uh, when I think about mythology, mm-hmm. I, I read a lot of I, I read a lot of mythology, a lot of like Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. He's well known for his hero, hero's journey, right? But he's written so many other things about mythology and how it evolved through time and how mm-hmm. it affected civilizations. And there's this idea that mythology is it's a set of stories, and it's got this context. And that context changes everywhere you go, because mm-hmm. the world is different everywhere you go. But the underlying truth of the story remains. Right. And so when you think about the mythology of vampires... What is what is it representing in the real world that we experience? Well, if you look in every societal mythology, Greek, Chinese, Japanese, Indian, uh, Anglo, there are vampires because there have always been diseases that they didn't have the science for or understanding of that basically explained why somebody would waste away leukemias, the cancers, the, the, the sneaky diseases that don't have outward symptoms, but this person just keeps getting weaker and weaker. And 
something that comes at night that can't be seen or you don't see is a good reason for, you know, you know, Mina Harker dying. Uh, it's in China, it's Zhangxi, which are hopping vampires. Um, in Greece, it was Lamia, I think. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it's called. But each society has a vampire tale. In uh, Africa, it's like a flying stomach with teeth. Uh, um, but it all basically fills in the place that science would cover now you know from the perspective of somebody who's wasting away or right. has one of these diseases right and then on the flip side the the blood sucking can't die comes out at night mm. where does that come from or how does that have you met any of those people in your real life <laughs> i'm sure you have <laughs> um well in la there's uh, a couple bars that are um vampire bars that are you know certain days of the month in hollywood and people dress in black and leather and have teeth and stuff and it's just i don't want to call it cosplay but you know it's a subset it's usually goths it's the that type of thing in, i was in where was i sweden or norway i don't remember which and there was a vampire bar that i uh I went to just because I was curious. It's like, it was called vampire bar. And I thought that was funny. Um, and, and I actually used the premise for it as a, a, a location in my second book, because it's pretty ballsy. If you're really a vampire to run a vampire bar, because you know, everybody there is a human and <laughs> they're just playing and you're not. And I thought that was funny. So you're saying that one of your characters actually ran a, a vampire bar. I see. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, just because it, it, I, what I described in the book is kind of what the one in uh, Scandinavia looked like. And I just filled it with, uh, you know, the, the people who do blood play or knife play for sexual gratification or stuff like that. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. It makes me think about the people who are, there are people out there who are doing doing things mm -hmm. or at least in, like trying really hard to actually do things. Mm -hmm. And then there are a subset of people who read about things mm -hmm. and then they imagine doing those things or they pretend to want to do those things. Right. So <laughs> one example I think of is um, in my past, one of my past lives, I, I was in the startup, like kind of startup tech scene. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who have the persona of a business <laughs> who who are, you know, they're reading books and they're going to seminars and they're paying for these smart people to tell them what to do. But the persona of the business never progresses until it solidifies into an actual business. Yeah. And I just imagine um, a vampire standing behind the bar watching a bunch of people pretend to be vampires. Mm, kind of. Yeah. And <laughs> I haven't read the book, so I, I, I don't want to give anything away if, if I'm uh, it, getting there. But but I just imagine the desire to rip out people's throats. 
when when you're the one who's the actual vampire and everybody else is pretending? Well, the <coughs> the vampires in the first two books are I'm more sympathetic with those characters kind of than a lot of the humans just because in in how do I put it in a lot of vampire novels, literature, movies, etc., once they become a vampire, a nice person becomes evil. You know, there's like a f- switch that's flipped. It's always like a curse. A curse or something. Yeah. Uh, rather than... Being entrapped some way. Rather than a malady that you cope with. Um, I, right now, there's a, a comic book series, uh, DC versus Vampires, where the superheroes are being turned into vampires, like Green Lantern. Robin, Superman, Wonder Woman, all that. Okay. And they are no longer good. They're still super powered, but they're evil. And I just don't know what that switch is. Mm-hmm. And for me, it, you know, there are good human beings and there are people that are just evil human beings yeah. in the world. Yeah. And what would make a good human being become evil just because of uh, a dietary change <laughs> a dietary, dietary well, change well when you're it. when you're drinking people's blood right. that's a significant change but yeah it's an well, interest it's an interesting question because there are you want to almost believe that everybody's born like feeling like you do where you just want to do good things you want to do interesting things and you want to help people mm-hmm. and you want them to reciprocate but every now and then you come across somebody who's clearly not doing the same thing I I read a book. I don't remember the author's name. It was a woman doctor, and the book's called um, The Sociopath Next Door. Yeah. And I, I picked it up out of the Burbank Library because I was writing a sociopath for my fourth book. Actually, I guess I, I had to shelf that one, but I still use The, the Sociopath for my fifth book. Um, and it's really frightening because statistically, there's about one in 25 people that's a sociopath. Right. And so you're in a group of, you know, 30 people and somebody there probably doesn't think like you, probably doesn't have empathy for a situation of a drowning child or a trapped puppy or anything where they would be compelled to save them. Yeah. And that's scary. That's really kind of scary. Um, but... It, it lists. It has a list of about nine to thirteen things. I don't remember exactly. I wrote it down. It's in my notes for my book. And these are indicative of sociopathic tendencies. And you look around at some of the people in the news, and you're like, "That guy's a sociopath." Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. People who, uh, yeah, sociopaths, I've, I've ran into a couple in my life. Really? Yeah. And um, they, it's like what you were saying, they didn't choose to be a sociopath, which is kind of like a vampire bit them. Something bit them, something changed them or made them different. I also like to think about, um, I think a lot about evolution. Mm-hmm. I come from a very religious background, and if you listen to any of my conversations, you'll you'll soon realize that I've abandoned that background. But in order to do that, I had to reconstruct my idea mm-hmm. of 
reality. Right. And so I, I've studied a lot of science and evolution, and part of it is just thinking about what I was saying earlier is you just hope that everybody kind of has the same genuineness in them, mm-hmm. the same desire to just do good and be good. Right. Yeah. And and from an evolutionary perspective, that seems to make a lot of sense as a, as a group species. But then you have to think about the need for variety. You have to throw something in there every now and then to see if if this set of genes or this trait, this ca- set of characteristics is going to shift some momentum for the for the species as a whole. Right. And 1 in 25. 1 in 25, that's what the the doctor came up with as far as a statistic for sociopaths. So 4% of the population. Yeah. But, but sometimes, you know, I just kind of wonder, I'm in the room of 25, am I the sociopath? Because <laughs> I have this... Because uh... <laughs> I, I will save puppies and I will save children and stuff, but sometimes if it's a human and they're just doing stupid stuff, it's like, uh, screw that. Yeah. I don't have any empathy for you just because you're being stupid. Yeah. So is that a sociopathic tendency or is that just me being done with stupidity? Yeah. That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, I have, I have a number of friends who struggle with narcissists in their life Mm -hmm. and I don't know what the crossover between a sociopath and a narcissist is. It's probably pretty similar. I think so. But, sometimes we sit around and we talk about it. We talk about a specific person who's making their life difficult or something or who has. Mm. And then you start to look at each other and wonder like, oh, are we narcissists? Because perhaps we were raised by a narcissist. So does, did we become right. one ourselves? But but I, we came up with this, uh, just me and my friends, we came up with this kind of um, litmus test where Ooh, you, where you really? go, yeah, you go, See, you're sitting in a room looking at other people and you're going, am I the sociopath? Mm -hmm. The fact that you're asking yourself that question might mean that you're not. I think sociopaths are kind of aware that they're sociopaths. Because maybe that's the difference between a narcissist then, because I don't think a narcissist. I don't think a narcissist would know. They cannot cannot admit to themselves that they would be. But go ahead. Um, don't know where my brain went. I, I lost the train of thought. You were going to say something about sociopaths being able to tell or think about themselves. As well, a- I, I ran across a an Instagram post that does questions from Reddit and stuff. And one of them was, uh, have you ever run across sociopaths and did they know it? And just reading that feed was kind of interesting because the sociopaths had a mask that they put on right. a human mask that, you know, they knew they were different. And this mask is the thing they put on to be socially accepted and be able to hold a job, have a relationship, even though they might have children, but really not care about the children, <laughs> which I can't imagine at all. Um, it, 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 it just, it's really interesting, but because I'm writing a, a FBI serial killer procedural thing right now, uh, very slowly. Um, you know, I've I've had to kind of look for information or the, the what makes it tick. You know, because 
it's something foreign to me. So it, it's an acting thing where you have to empathize for the character you're playing. And since I'm playing every character in the book, um, I have to figure out how to make that guy tick so right. that it makes sense and seems real. That cliche actor's question, what's my motivation? Right. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was an actor for a very, very long time, and I worked with a lot of people that did different techniques, um, you know, because I figure everybody's got a toolbox of acting techniques, and if you just stick with one screwdriver, like method acting, it's, you end up being, you know, you don't necessarily need to be a bad person to play a bad person. You don't need right. to be a serial killer to play a serial killer because then you finish the movie and you go to jail because you've just serial killed a bunch of people. <laughs> and that's just ridiculous. Right. Um, the, the, the way I look at acting and it, it, it seems, I don't know now that I'm no longer in Hollywood. I don't know if anybody would agree with me. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be play. This is the kind of play you did when you were five and the floor was lava, you know? And if you... You're, because you're if le- you embody it enough, you, you become you, that thing. You, you leap from couch to yes. the chair to the table yeah. and if you touch the floor, you die yeah. in a very dramatic way and you scream and you melt into the floor. Yeah. The floor is lava. I, I wrote a, a sketch that I never actually did on YouTube that was uh, the F.I.L., acting studio so you had a bunch of serious you know actors in a sort of a a warehouse setting and they go okay this is our uh uh creator of the fil acting uh technique and they bring in like an eight-year-old and he just goes okay the floor is lava go (laughs) And it's it's a friend of mine who teaches acting did that to an acting class, and she could tell who got it and who understood that it's play, and who, and and the people who were overthinking it going wait the the floor is lava what, mm. and I thought that was very funny because I never you know the the thing that I wrote is a funny sketch actually <laughs> has some merit <laughs> for teaching acting yeah well I imagine that it it requires. Mm-hmm. Whether you're on stage or in front of a camera or you're trying to figure out who you are in a room, it requires you to, like, to do it well, you have to accept whatever the scene is mm-hmm. and you have to become part of the scene. Yes. You know, when you were talking about uh, a sociopath putting on a face, a human face mm-hmm. that they can present to the world, one of the things that I always struggle with is that... um I told you earlier that I my my growing up period was a little different. And and the way it was different is that my parents were very particularly my mom, she was very fundamentalist when it came to religion. We were LDS or Mormon. Okay. And um I think she wanted us to not be influenced by the world. And so she took us to live in the country hmm. and she homeschooled us. Ooh. And so I had now that I'm older and I've read enough about psychology and early childhood development, I'm aware that what children need is to be around as many peers as possible because that 
that part of you that's like trying to figure out what your face is, mm -hmm. you learn that from the kids your age. You bounce that off of them. And when I think about my childhood, when I was in those stages, I was alone walking around in the country for hours at a time. Wow. Just, you know, looking at, <laughs> looking at trees and vineyards and things. And so uh, it's like a question that I ask myself a lot. Like, who am I? when I'm around other people, like, who do I, who am I, like, who am I supposed to be? And it's, uh, there's a, there's a, almost like a fear that comes to me sometimes because I go, the way I'm interacting with somebody, is this the real me? Because if it's not, that's really scary to me. Hmm. And, um, for most of my life, what that meant was I just sat in the corner quietly Oh, because I didn't, I, I hadn't had that social validation of right. what I was testing out or what I was trying out. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's kind of what I'm doing here is just this is like a facade to get past all of that mm -hmm. and just sit down with somebody and have a one-on-one -on -one where we can just talk about whatever. Right. Hmm. Interesting. But it haunts me, to be honest. It's almost like a curse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've read... I find religion kind of fascinating and I've read a number of things and I read the book of Mormon and it just seemed odd. You know, I didn't, you know, after a certain point it just became repetitive. Right. Um, and I think it kept saying, well, just see Isaiah, whatever the heck, like, you know, the Bible was a footnote to it and it, it, you know, had, it had the stuff in the book, but then it had the stuff that, you know, you get your own planet when you die and families last forever and you can baptize people from history. Right. Which is weird. Like, I heard they, LDS, baptized Hitler. Why? <laughs> You're trying to save yeah. a genocidal maniac? No. He's dead. He's yeah. burnt. Yeah. Let him stay dead. He was a bad man. Yeah, the the Book of Mormon is a rabbit hole. The whole the whole religion is a rabbit hole that I could go down. But what I discovered, what I what I discovered at a very late age, after I had left church behind and and kind of, I did this thing where I was I was so traumatized and betrayed by my religion mm -hmm. that I just said, "Fuck religion." Mm -hmm. Just I don't need that in my life. And so I went to science, mm -hmm. and I just I explored you know, physics and biology, evolution. And, and I put together this, this map in my head of what the world is. But then it, 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 inevitably it comes back to human psychology because that's what we're experiencing. And once you get to there, you have to go, oh, then what is spirituality? What is mythology? What is religion? What is all this stuff? Yeah. And so I've come pretty full circle on this idea that I believe, I believe, uh, there are two ways to think about God. If you really believe in a God, you either believe in them in a mystical way, which is to say, I can't define God. I just know that there's something bigger out there than me. And then the other way is to say, is to give a literal definition, a literal interpretation. And to say, if you're Mormon, you say, God is a white man <laughs> and he literally exists and you can see him if, he stands in, if he's willing to stand in front of you. You could just see him and talk to him. And um, 
See, that's how I was. That's how I read the Bible. That's how I read the Book of Mormon. That's how it was taught to me as a kid. But going full circle and coming back to this place where I go, oh, mythology is really important and helpful. But you have to look at it as mythology and not as some literal story, right? So if you look at Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. it can be very helpful if you're not thinking of it as literally the first two people who ever existed, but just a story of what it is to exist. Right. And when I come all the way back to the Book of Mormon, I realize that it's not scripture at all. I mean, scripture literally just means written words, but it's not, it's not a religious text in the same sense that the Bible's a religious text, because there's no, there's literally no metaphor in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned Isaiah, which is like this weird thing where they throw a bunch of chapters in from Isaiah that make no sense. Nobody can understand it. Yeah. The rest of it is just a story that says, this is exactly what happened. Right. And then you take all the questions that were floating around in the 1800s upstate New York about religion, baptism, and heaven, and God, and who, like, where did the Native Americans come from, and all this stuff, and then it just answers all those questions. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like pretty, it's pretty pedestrian, to be honest. Well, I I think when Joseph Smith wrote it, and he wrote it. It wasn't gold tablets with two rocks to help decipher it. There's some pretty interesting theories about where he might have not written I, it but gotten it from. I'm, I'm not sure, but I figure he had the Bible to crib from, but also uh, complete works of Shakespeare, just because of the language is kind yeah. of Shakespearean, and that's not typical for the 1800s time. And he, I don't remember uh, what, but I kind of looked at that and went, he's using those words wrong. Because <laughs> I know Shakespeare, I've I've done sixteen different Shakespeare plays, some of them multiple times and stuff. So you get used to the language and what the words are. And I just went, mm-hmm, that, that's weird. Yeah, I have I, I have no recollection of what it was, but you know, it just struck me as wrong, mm. wrong usage, wrong wordage. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, Mark Twain's got an interesting quote about the Book of Mormon. Really? There's a book in the Book of Mormon called Ether. Mm-hmm. And um, he said something, I, I don't want to, I'm going to mess this up, so it's not an exact quote, but he said something about the the most aptly named part of the whole book was Ether because it put him to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> he was a funny guy. Yeah. He was a very funny guy. Um, Very prolific. Oh, my God. I did a, he wrote a book, or, or wrote a play, uh, the Diary of Adam and Eve, that is very funny. And it's, you know, uh, Adam and Eve when they first are in the Garden of Eden. And they're just trying to figure stuff out. <laughs> it's very funny. This is a Mark Twain play? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Diary of Adam and Eve. Um, but uh, the thing that you said about mythology, I had a mythology class when I was in college uh, at U of A, University of Arizona. Yeah. Um, and the professor was awesome. He, you know, if you have one of those professors where you just get it and he's a very good communicator and he's very, uh, good with his subject and stuff, but he kind of explained mythology as 
science before they had science because, well, why does the sun come up? Well, that's Apollo riding in his mm. flaming chariot going around. Well, how does he get back to the other side? He goes underground through Hades and comes out the other side and just does it again. Okay, where do rainbows come from? It is the goddess Iris. And in, rather than uh, right. the refracting of water vapor and sunlight. Um, and it just kind of made me think, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and regions in Greece would have different myths, uh, for Zeus or for, you know, uh, they weren't all the same myths like, uh, you know, Zeus and Io or Zeus and, you know, Zeus yeah. got around. He, he was a, dog. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it, it was very interesting and, that class has stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. From the, if you think about humans going back far enough, mm -hmm. they're the same physically, psychologically as us. Even if you go back a hundred thousand years, right? 200,000 years. Yeah. We don't know the exact date, but, but I think what you're saying makes total sense. You, you're just, as a human being, you look at the world and you, you ask that question, why mm -hmm. or how, or what do I do now? And, there, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jordan Peterson, but he's he's like a professor therapist from Canada, and he's kind of become big in the last few years. But he talks about how science is actually a segment of religion. And I think a lot of people would have issue with that. But I think what he's really getting to is the fact, or this, this, this idea that it's all inspired by awe. Mm -hmm. When you're human, you look you look around, and when something doesn't make sense, you can't understand it. You have this sense of awe for it. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like that. <laughs> I mean, from the natural world, from looking up at the stars, looking at the ocean, mountains, whatever it is, you feel that sense of awe. But at the same time, when somebody's really good at something, you have an awe for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And when somebody can do something that you can't understand, you have so much awe for them that it looks like magic. Well, there was a quote from Isaac Asimov, I think, uh, a sufficiently advanced technology. technology looks like magic to people who don't understand it. Yeah. Or, or something along yeah, those lines. Yeah, any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indiscernible from magic. Yes, yeah. that's the one. It's one, um, it's one of my favorite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the, the mythology class I had... He, we read the Bible as literature, and I also had a humanities class where we read the Book of Job as literature. And the Book of Job is pretty messed up because it's God and Satan hanging out, and they're just like, let's mess with this guy. Yeah. See how much crap we can put on him to see if he still worships you. And that's really screwed up. Yeah. Um, but but the— It's a Judaic God, though. Yeah. It's Yahweh. Yeah. Where he was actually anthropomorphic more than— uh, a you know celestial being, right? Um, but if you look at Genesis and the creation myth, it's like almost point for point like uh, Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian Sumerian creation myth, where instead of you know uh, a god, a male god passing over a female god that's water, it's the breath of God going over the ocean, right? To make yeah. To, for creation and you know when you see that they cribbed 
previous creation myths just because they couldn't come up with, well, where does the world come from? Well, the great potato, because <laughs> everybody's going to go, wait a minute, what? The great potato. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it just kind of makes their uh, cribbing, stealing, plagiarizing uh, a, a little obvious. And, you know, but some people think, you know, it is the literal word of God, and this is exactly six days yeah. how it happened, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think that that when you start to look at it as the literal word, that's where it gets real messy. <laughs> but if you can look at it as cr- creativity, mm. right? Because going far enough back, before there were priest casts, when we were all just living in tribes wherever we were in the in the wilderness, the the person, there was a specific group of people and you can call them shamans or storytellers. or storytellers or whatever they were. And those were the people who crafted reality for the group. Mm-hmm. When, when these big civilizations started appearing, these, these city-states and these nations, th- there was a group of people who took over that role, and that was the priestcraft, mm-hmm. the, priest, the priest group. That's not to say that the shamans stopped existing within those bigger cultures. Because think about it this way. You're talking about how they plagiarize these stories. But you write books about vampires. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to step back and say it's not literal, then there's really no difference. It's like art builds on what was before it. Right. And as long as you can look at it as something that's helpful but not literal. Well, I don't really believe in vampires at least i've never run across any i've seen people who are like energy <laughs> vampires and stuff yeah. but uh i don't believe there are people out there drinking blood well there I might there be might blasphemy. be it's not keeping them alive know. forever <laughs> um no i when tom was doing the dark man and <coughs> dark man sorry um he had somebody come in to make teeth for the other cast members because you know i was the only one with teeth um, and he brought in a guy, I don't remember where he found him, but, you know, he explained the whole project and the guy kind of went and, and, and they're not pissed. And Tom was like, who? The vampires. <laughs> like they were real. And, I'm, and I wasn't there because I had my own teeth oh, and Tom told me the story and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. So there are, are, are there really vampires working for the government? But you know, there's a... a, a <laughs> What's funny, okay, what's not funny, um, after our series came out, about 2005 or six, there was a comic book called CVO, Covert Vampire, Vampiric Operations. And it basically was our series. Mm. And one of them looked like me and acted like my character. And I'm just was like, Tom, you should sue. But... It's 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 that coming to America problem of, you know, how do you prove that Eddie Murphy saw the thing that da 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 da, da you know, because mm-hmm. for coming to America, Art Buckwald, I think, is the guy who came up with it. He actually made, you know, made the case and won a monetary judgment. But, you know, a small comic book company and uh, an independent creator, you know, going toe to toe in a courtroom is just, you know. Makes money for lawyers, not really anybody else. <laughs> not for writers. Not for writers. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was 
just one of those things. I saw the character. I'm like, that's me. That's totally me. Wow. God damn. Well, and, and, you know, um, what Tom also tried to do is he had found a couple of comic book artists and he, they wrote a script and these people, uh, you know, illustrated it. So he tried to do multiple things with uh, the, the web series, you know, put it in comic book form. And uh, somebody wrote a novel on spec, you know, a, like 60,000 words or something that was dark commandos and it's just fascinating to me that somebody goes yeah i'll write that on spec yeah or they're they're fast enough to actually do that with the, the vampire books i wrote i was pretty fast um i don't write in a linear fashion you know uh but if i just sit down and have a place to go with it i can crank out uh 15 Hundred, three thousand, four thousand words a day. Yeah. If you know, you're a writer. Yeah. So, you know, that's a pretty respectable amount. Um yeah. there's a thing called NanoRemo, National November Writing Month. Oh, I've heard of it, yeah. Um, so you write one thousand six hundred and sixty six words a day for thirty days, and by the end you have about a fifty two thousand word novel. Gotcha. Um you know, I did it once. I did it with uh, was it the second one or the third one? Second one. I don't remember. Um, but, you know, it, it, I don't have the discipline to sit down like that. Because with the, the serial killer thing, I'm still working it out in my head how it works. I, I know certain things and I've figured out a few things since. Uh, but I haven't really sat down in front of a computer for a month. Yeah. Yeah, there have been times. So the the current project that I'm working on is, it's um, it's fiction, but it's autobiographical in nature. So it's got a lot of pieces from my experience, and what it requires is for me to write something, mm. and then I have to sit with it to to be like, okay, now I have to figure this out. Mm. Like, what was it that happened that turned me into this, mm. and that has been that's been a real process. It takes like it, it writing is this weird thing too, where you sit down, you have this idea in your head. And so my, my philosophy for writing is write what you know must be there. So if you have these ideas in your head of like, this is what the story is going to be. You can see those scenes in your head. Just, just write those scenes. And then there's going to be other pieces. But as you write those scenes, the other ones will start to like appear. Mm-hmm. But yeah. but at the same time, you, <laughs> for me, I write stuff and then I spend a year meditating and going to therapy and smoking pot. And then I come back to it and I go, oh, I see where that was supposed to go. And so I could see, I could see somebody sitting down and writing a novel in a month, mm-hmm. but it's going to be. Oh, that's just the rough words. That's, yeah. that's not edited, polished, uh, mauled over. I just can't even imagine it having the depth that it needs to have. Like, it depends on the type of novel, right? This is, it it depends on the type of novel. But if you're just going to write, if you're writing a story that you can write out, Mm -hmm. and there it is. Uh, Well, the stuff, uh, the the books I've written are, uh, my friend calls them cinematic. So I'm I'm basically seeing a movie in my head and transcribing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not a lot of flower language. It has a very fast storyline 
uh, goes from place to place. But I don't write it in a linear fashion. I'll write like, oh, this would be a good scene over here. Right. And I already have this, so I just have to figure out the bridge to get them there. I think you're just saying the same thing in different words where I said, you just got to write what you what must be there. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know why there are vampires in my head, but that was just, you know, what the heck. Yeah. Well, okay. So you brought up this quote about technology and magic. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're a creative person. So you, you've done acting, you've been to Hollywood, mm-hmm. you've written books. I'm curious if you've ever been to a psychic. No, not really. Uh, there have been a couple jobs I worked where they had tarot card readers or things like that. But as, you know, corporate parlor tricks. Yeah. Um, so I've had my cards read. I think I had palmistry once. Um, but I'm a skeptic. I, <laughs> I just don't buy that crap. Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't expect you to believe it literally but you had this you had this uh you had brought up that quote before mm-hmm. about magic magic any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic mm-hmm. and what if we just change the word from technology to social skill any social skill sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic so if you think about a psychic not as some woo woo mm-hmm. you know literal i can see the future kind of person but what if when you sit down with a psychic, they just have a really good ability to look at you. And read people? And read you. Well, I, I don't remember which one it was, if it was the palmistry or the uh, tarot card reader. She looked at me and went, that guy's a tough room. And she basically, you know, called me on it, you know, because. She called you a tough room? I call me a tough room. Oh, Because okay. she could tell that I was just not going along with the act. Right. You know. And that doesn't mean that, you know, she's psychic. It just means she can see I'm a skeptic. <laughs> um, as far as magic goes, uh, I have friends uh, who are magicians. And, you know, I've been to the Magic Castle a bunch of times. Uh, maybe not a bunch, but a number of times more than like your average person. Because to get into the Magic Castle, you have to know people. Mm. Um, and it's it's really... Magic, there's a gimmick. I don't know what the gimmick is, but there's a gimmick. I was at a table, you know, about this size, actually smaller, in the close-up room. And there's a guy with his sleeves rolled back. And he's making things disappear and appear in his hands. And I'm I'm, I'm a foot and a half away and I have no idea where it's happening. And I don't know how he did it, but it's not magic. It's ambidextrous skills with fingers and hiding things it's yeah yeah, you you call it a gimmick i would say he knows something that you don't know right i just don't know what the gimmick is right um but you know uh i i have a friend who does a a mind reading trick that is really phenomenal i just have no idea who he does it yeah um there was at a corporate thing they had a magician walking around doing you know tabletop magic and he took a quarter and he bent it Mm. in his fingers he would did you know, went back and forth with it, and he bent a quarter. And I asked Micah later and I go, how did he do that? And he goes, it was magic. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> Just because that's yeah. not the answer yeah, you yeah. want. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask you this question. Hmm? So you, like I was saying, you have this artistic side to you in a, in such a way. Yeah. And, and I know you're very like, you're very self deprecating. You don't, you don't, 
you don't like to think about yourself this way. I can I can see that in you. But there's got to be something there because you've you've pursued things that most people would only dream about. And so the question is, what is it that you know that other people can't see? What is it about about Me? you that uh, makes it so that you're willing to do things or live in a way that's outside the flow of what everybody else is doing? Uh, Maybe hmm. let me ask it in one other way. Okay. What's that thing that drives you crazy because you can see what's happening and other people can't? Um. Well, that's a difficult question. Uh, what do I know about me? Or okay. Um. I'm a good actor. I know that. It's just I never had the opportunities to show it all the time uh, because acting is a, a, a business that is a not like writing. It's not like painting or sculpture. Acting needs other people. Yeah. Acting needs a support system of lights, a stage, uh, other actors. You need somebody to write a script you and need you need somebody, somebody to, write a to direct script. it. Right. So it's not something you can do on your own. There are tons of people doing TikToks or uh, videos on YouTube and stuff like that. That's not necessarily acting. Um, I'm a good actor. There are things that I did very well, or plays or characters or whatnot. There are some that I was okay. There are a few that I was lost and I had no idea what the <laughs> fuck I was doing. Yeah. And I knew it. And in one situation, I was, uh, it was Twelfth Night by Shakespeare. I was playing Sir Andrew Aguecheek and I was lost and didn't know what the hell I was doing with it. And I was not having a good time and acting should be fun. That, that's what I'm going back to the, you know, floor is lava thing. Um, and I think it showed because the director called me up one day. And went, I don't think you're having any fun. I went, no, I'm not having any fun. Because he wasn't giving me anything. You know, he was just, okay, that's that's good. No, do you like what I'm doing? You give me some kind of direction. And he wasn't. And he goes, do you want to quit? And it, that had never crossed my mind. Hmm. You know, I, I don't look at something and I'm like, I'm just out of here. Um, and I said, can I think about it? Because I was exhausted. I was at work. I was, you know, so I, I went to a quiet place at work and I think I took a nap for a half an hour. And I called him back and I said, yeah, I'd like to quit. And he went, okay. Really? <laughs> I can quit? That's really wild. Um, and there was another time that I did a one-man show. A friend of mine thought I looked like uh, Richard Feynman. And... Uh, he was the Caltech physicist. Physicist, yeah. And I saw the pictures. I'm like, that's pretty cool. And I had read, I had heard stories about a physicist. And then when I was doing the research, I ran across the stories in the because he he wrote a number of books, and he's just brilliant and kind of wild as far as physicists go. Yeah. And so I did a one man show of as Richard Feynman. It was called QED. Um, and I never really thought about quitting on that one. Uh, it, it took 
you know, nine months to a year to actually do it because it's a 90 minute show and I'm pretty much the only character. There's another character that comes in for a little bit, but I'm carrying the entire show. I'm talking to the audience. It was, it was really the toughest thing I'd ever done, but a lot of fun. And after I finished it, after we did the show, I, you know, for some reason the director said, you know, I, I'm surprised you did it. And I'm like, why? Well, you, we could have quit at any time. And I, that had never crossed my mind. Um, but I love Feynman. I mean, he was just so interesting and, you know, had a really interesting creative life beyond physics because yeah. he was in South Pacific at Caltech. You know, they had a theater and they would have these egghead physicists <laughs> and students doing musicals which is wild. Um, but when you have one side of your brain that works, you know, exclusively like that, you need a creative outlet on the other side. Right. Um, but what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, the question was, uh, what is it that you see that other people don't? I think you've answered it. Maybe you just don't. You're, because if I was to put it into words, if I was to kind of restate back to you what, what I'm hearing. All right. You said earlier, you said that acting should be fun. Mm -hmm. And you were, you just gave an example of a play that you did and you were like, I'm not having fun. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, I don't have to do this. Yeah. Well, the, the reason I'm here in Phoenix is this is where I grew up um, and whatnot. And the pandemic sort of changed the world for a lot of people. And... My dad died in February last year, but when the pandemic started, I was going back and forth between L.A. and Phoenix a lot because he needed a hand. He was not doing well. Yeah. He had physical problems and illnesses and things. And so I was helping him, trying to get him set up with uh, home care and stuff and got him into a nursing home and whatnot. And... When things started, you know, he died in February. And then I took care of all the the death stuff. There's a lot of paperwork. Um, but when things started to sort of come out of the pandemic last summer, because the work I do is in production, so it's corporate, it's weddings and things. And when nobody, you can't have more than 10 mm. people in a room, work's gone. Yeah. Um. And I just was getting auditions for things because, you know, every, things were still being produced with COVID protocols, but you would film yourself on your phone and upload it to a website. And I just knew that, you know, the odds are against me. Uh, as far as Hollywood goes, Hollywood likes youth. Hollywood likes archetypes that audiences immediately understand. Um, a friend of mine is from Wisconsin. He's a big burly cat. He is, you, he walks into a room and he can be a blue collar worker, a cop, a detective, a fireman, wrestling coach, football coach, high school teacher. He fits in something in every casting director's head. Like, Oh, that's the guy. Right. I didn't fit in an easy box. And 
last summer, I, I I just was doing these auditions on my phone and stuff, and I was not having fun. And I was, I just kind of went, I want to quit. <laughs> and it's a huge yeah. thing because it, being an actor has been part of my identity for so long. Right. You know, um, well, what do you do? Well, uh, this is my day job. I'm an actor. Yeah. As far as acting here in the Valley, oh God, going into the politics of a theater company or, you know, getting out there again. I don't know. Uh, as far as my type goes, over 45 white guy, <laughs> you know, there's a yeah. lot of over 45 white guys yeah. here. Uh, there are tons of them in California um, and they had better agents and better IMDb pages than me. Yeah. And I was just, you know, I got tired of banging my head against the walls. Yeah. So, so when I think about my childhood, I told you a little bit about it, like walking around in the countryside by myself. There's this really important thing that kids learn when they're young, because when a child is born, they're the center of their, their universe. And in a way, we all are the center of our universe as we grow older. But at some point, you have to learn to let other people be the center for a little while. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is gameplay. So you talked about the floor is lava mm -hmm. and how if you throw a kid in a living room and you say floor is lava, go, they just they can just get into it and play it. Mm -hmm. The way that the way that kids learn how like what they want to be or they learn how to act in different situations is to literally put themselves in that situation over and over and play it out and see how it goes. Yep. And one of the things that I've discovered about being a grown up is that we're doing the exact same thing. All of this stuff is just people going, what if it was like this? Mm. Let's see how it goes. Hollywood is just a bunch of people making things up. Mm -hmm. It's just a big game that somebody's discovered and then all these other people jump in to join the game. But in a way, the same thing happens. You know, I had a corporate career. I was a CPA for a while. I did audits. And I realized that that was not a fun game. <laughs> it's not a fun game. But the interesting thing about the interesting thing about it is that if you're, aware enough you can actually look around and just be like oh that's a game i want to play that's not a game i want to play yeah. but an interesting way to think about it is because you're talking about it from an acting perspective a hollywood perspective i think like shakespeare said we're all on a stage we're all acting in some way because you know the things that people will say at the water cooler is not the same things they'll say over the dinner table no. so everybody's just putting themselves into some game mm -hmm. and the even this right now, what I'm doing, I'm forcing you to sit down and, and have a conversation with me because I'm like, play my game with me, play my game. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. I have the exact same philosophy that you do, where I say to myself, as long as this is fun, I'm going to keep playing. And when it's not fun anymore, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's worth playing because there's plenty of other games out there. Yeah. There are always plenty of other games out there that could be fun. Well, I, I picked up an um, odd skill set of stuff just because people go uh can you do this and i basically answer i don't know and i try um there was a theater in north hollywood and because of set building and stuff uh greg called me up and said do you know how to mount a wall 
air conditioning unit? And I went, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I know. I don't know if I know. <laughs> and I looked on YouTube and I found uh, kind of instructional videos. And I went, that doesn't seem too bad. And so basically, I'm, you know, cutting through stucco walls. And I'm like, <laughs> I was measuring so many times and stuff. It took eight hours to do one just because I... Once you start, you know, sawzalling through stucco wall to get to the outside, you're committed. <laughs> and I was just like, all right. Um, it worked. And then he goes, can you put another one in? I'm like, okay. Uh, it created a ton of dust and sawdust and stuff, but I still did it. I had him help lift this gigantic AC unit into place. But I didn't know I could do that. I just kind of did it. Yeah. You know? Um, uh, that's kind of how I pick up a lot of weird things as far as skills go. But that's part of, that's part of, um, being that child forever. I'm just open to the game. I don't know. And you know, yeah. that's, that's kind of how I, I roll. <laughs> well, I think that, um, our time is up. I, I should probably okay get rolling myself, but I, I've had a really good time. And I think that what you said just now just what you said about like i just enjoy figuring it out i enjoy mm -hmm. rolling with it i think that's that's something that's really important and this conversation for me has been a lot of fun and it's been i came into this conversation saying i don't know what this is going to be but we'll figure it out mm -hmm. and i'm i'm glad i did it because i had a lot of fun and i appreciate oh, you doing thanks. it with me oh yeah i had a good time thanks Thanks for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast. I hope you find this and every other episode both interesting and engaging. I know I enjoy making them. My goal is to record high-quality conversations, both in terms of content and production value. But there's still a lot I need to learn. So if you have comments or suggestions about the audio recordings or the conversations themselves, please let me know. You can contact me via email at explorerpoet at gmail.com. For more about the Explorer Poet podcast, please visit explorerpoet.com or follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really want to be supportive, please share it with a friend. Thanks.